So um, for those of you who may be new, those of you who uh, missed last week or a couple of weeks, let me just kind of get us all on the same page. Ready? So we're talking about this idea of doing what Jesus did. In this year-long exploration of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we're talking about spending time with Jesus, we're talking about becoming more like Jesus, and now we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about doing the things that Jesus did. And if you look at the record of the life of Jesus as recorded in four Gospels, there's only really five or six things that truly exhibit what Jesus was all about. Now, we could drill down and there could be a dozen things, but there's five or six things that stand out. And it looks like this. He was committed to helping those in need. And next Sunday, we're going to start exploring that idea. We see that Jesus very actively and very passionately was committed to sharing God's truth with whoever would listen. We know that he was very interested in connecting with family, not just his blood relatives, but those who shared a, a faith in God, his disciples and an extended group of people who started to follow him. We know that Jesus was committed to mentoring others in faith as exhibited in his commitment to his disciples. And then perhaps one of the most resounding characteristics of what Jesus was all about was to sacrifice for the good of others. And so as we anticipate looking at these several characteristics of how Jesus spent his time and his energy, I'm just sort of allowing a, a few weeks to just sort of lay the groundwork. And so here's where we've been the last three weeks. We talked about the, the importance of imitating Jesus, that sometimes to be a disciple is just to do what the master did, do what the rabbi does. It's to imitate him, even when it's not necessarily natural to us. We imitate him as we learn to do what Jesus did. Last week, we talked about the importance of just doing, just putting the time and the energy toward the things that Jesus was committed to doing. And today, I want to talk about love. Where does love fit into all of this? Or as Tina Turner once asked, what's love got to do with this? So today I want to talk about the place of love in all of this. Now, if you could just imagine uh, an enormous uh, uh, scale or balance, and we were weighing out 2,000 years of church history and what the church talks about, I think what we would find is that the scale would tip in the direction that we historically have spent a lot of time talking about God's love for us. And there's no critique of that. I hope we never stop talking about God's extraordinary love for us. His grace, his forgiveness the gift of salvation, the sacrifice of his son, God's extraordinary love for us. May we never grow tired of hearing about God's outrageous love for us. But I think if we put it on a scale, we have talked a lot about the central truth of God's love for us. And it's all through the scriptures for God so loved the world. That's you and me. That he gave he did something. He gave his one and only son. Romans tells us this. God demonstrated his love. He didn't just say it. He demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still a mess in our sin. 
Christ died for us. John tells us this. This is how God showed his love. Again, he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he did something. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So historically, the church has talked a lot about God's love for us. But what we haven't talked about nearly enough is our love for God. I'm not saying we've never talked about it. I'm, not, I'm just saying perhaps we've not talked about our love for God enough. If you ask any Christian, do you love God? They would, they would say, well, of course I love God. I mean, what Christian in their right mind wouldn't say yes to the question, do you love God? Especially when we have Jesus on record as saying that the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God. But do we? So let me ask you a question. Don't, don't answer out loud. Do you love God? Again, most of us would say, well, well, Paul, of course I love God. Let me ask it this way. Does God know that you love him? I mean, well, I... I'd like to think that he does. So then let me ask it this way. How does God know that you love him? How does God know that you love him? And most people would say, uh, well, uh, I mean, God can read my heart. He can read my mind. Certainly he knows I love him. He, he knows my deepest thoughts. Or maybe you would say, God knows that I love him because, well, I tell him. Sometimes when I'm praying, I'll just tell God that I love him. And others, others would say, well, of course God knows that I'm here, aren't I? Like I came to church, I, I come to church most Sundays. Surely God would know that I love him. Aha, uh -huh, yeah. The old go to church expression of love. What if, what if I made a list of the 50 ways that God recognizes our love for him and going to church wasn't one of the options? Would you still be able to demonstrate to God that you love him if church and going to church wasn't one of the options? So let's talk about that. Because many Christians would be at a complete loss if they had to prove their love for God and attending church wasn't one of the options. Do you remember the account where um, Jesus had, um, he was tried several occasions before he was crucified? And he had a disciple named Peter. And Peter three times denied even knowing Jesus. When asked, aren't you with this guy? Aren't you one of his disciples? Peter, with profanity, said, no, no, I, I don't even know who he is. Jesus is crucified. Three days later, he resurrects from the dead. 
And a few days after that, he has an occasion to sit on the shores and have breakfast with Peter. And you remember how that conversation went? Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter said, Lord, come on, you, you know, you know that I love you. If Jesus was a bit snarky, which he wasn't, but if he had been, I could imagine him saying, well, Peter, really, I don't know that you love me because just a few days ago you were denying that you even knew me. But it's interesting that when Jesus responds to Peter's assurances of love, Jesus, you ready? Gives him something to do. Peter, you want to demonstrate that you love me? You want to show me that you love me? Here's something to do. Here's a way that you demonstrate it. You see, one of the things we have to understand about the word love in the Bible is that it's rarely ever an emotion or a feeling. In the Bible, the word love is a word of action. The word love is about a commitment to demonstrating the value or the worth of something or someone. You see, you love somebody when you demonstrate just how important they are to you. That's why it's possible, it's possible for someone to love a car. Because they put so much time and energy and money into their vehicle, they're demonstrating to it what it's worth to them. Which creates a problem when that same amount of time, money, and energy isn't directed toward perhaps their spouse. Why? Because their spouse may not, in truth, hold the same value. Because love is a way that we demonstrate the value or worth that somebody has in our life. Did you follow that? All right, you ready? Are you ready? This might make us squirm a little. But there's a really interesting passage in John's epistle to the early church that teaches us a really valuable lesson. John says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He did something. He demonstrated it. And we ought to lay down our lives. We ought to demonstrate. Lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. So John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, no concern, no compassion arises in them. John asks, how can the love of God be in that person? And then he says this, dear children, let us not love with just words, where we just say that we love somebody. Let's not, let us not love with words and speech, but let us love with actions. And in truth, that's really important. 
Why? Because what John is saying is that when you tell somebody that you love them, but you don't demonstrate it with action, what you're actually doing, you ready? Is lying. It's not the truth. It's possible to tell somebody that you love them, but you don't demonstrate to them the value or worth that they have. And you're not being honest with your words. Do you see where I'm going here? So it's possible for us as Christians to tell God that we love him without the accompanying actions that truly demonstrate his enormous value to us. And this is a problem. As we say in America in a couple of different ways, we, we talk is cheap. Same in the ears of God. Talk is cheap. We say things like, well, put your money where your mouth is or put your time where your mouth is. Put your energy where your mouth is. Do something as a demonstration of what you talk about. Sometimes we use the phrase, walk the talk. Or we could just say it outright in this way. Don't tell me how much you love me. Show me how much you love me. So it's interesting, all through the New Testament, we see this very specific relationships between what we believe and how we behave. There's a relationship between what you say and what you do, how you believe and how you behave. You can't separate the two. Uh, well, you can, but it's not what God is calling us to. It's interesting, throughout the New Testament, you'll run into a, a, an interesting list of words. You, you'll run into the word walk. Walk is used as a way of describing like how you go about your life. You'll read the word fruit. And they're not talking about apples and oranges. We're talking about the way that you conduct yourself, the deeds that you do, the, the works of your life. This is all a part of the language of the New Testament to describe our spiritual journey. So what we learn is that hypocrisy is the duplicity between what you say you believe and your behavior. Does that make sense? All right, to show you that I'm not making this up, I want you to see just a handful of passages of Scripture where there's just, it just couldn't be more clear. I could take you to dozens of other ones. But look at this pattern that we see in the teachings of the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. 
My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them through the person of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me on. Telling you what God wants you to know. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, like hold to them, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John writes this to the early church. This is how we know what, this is how we know that we love, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is the love for God to keep his commandments. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Did you hear that? We know that our faith in him is legitimate and real when we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what, his, what he commands is not telling the truth. He's a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we know our hearts are set at rest in his presence. We do, we do this by keeping his commands and we do what pleases him. This is his command to believe in the name of his son Jesus and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he lives in them. I, I could keep going. But I, I think you get the point. The point sounds something like this. Don't tell me how much you love me when you neglect doing what I've asked. Over and over and over again, both Jesus and the writers of the New Testament remind us that if we're going to do what Jesus did, we have to understand the connection between what we say and what we do, that we demonstrate that we, in fact, love him. Did you follow all of that? Yes. So, I want to share with you a little bit of my fan mail. <laughs> because perhaps there's some confusion about what I'm trying to say. I received this letter this week. I'm not going to read all of it. Hello, Pastor Wilson. It's a good start. I've attended Cibolo Creek three or more times. I've heard you speak three times. Each sermon you have preached seems to be a works-based salvation approach, which saddens me. For my reminder, they write Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, capital letters. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, capital letters, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. Our works are like filthy rags. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, without the added works, the wall of sin that separates us from God is removed. So us thinking that we can add anything to the gift of eternal life through the righteousness of Christ is blasphemous. So the instructions to me is this. Preach the gospel. God is not judging us by our works. I have yet to hear the gospel in your message. My husband and I are looking for a church that preaches the gospel weekly because we know the gospel is woven throughout all the scriptures. We cannot save ourselves. You will cause your sheep to be anxious if you make them think that they have to earn their way. How many works will be enough? One of the tensions that a preacher lives in is that he only has about 35 minutes each Sunday. And it seems that if he talks about this topic, there's no time to talk about that topic. If he chooses to talk about this subject, there isn't the time and the place to also explore this subject, even though they may be related. So it's hard. And a preacher has to trust like the larger body of his work to demonstrate his theological commitments. Three or four messages won't be enough. But I got to thinking, well, maybe, maybe some other people might be confused about the true nature of the gospel. And that perhaps some of you might be feeling a little confused about, well, he says we're saved by grace, not by works. But he seems to be talking a lot about the things that we're supposed to do. So let's, let's talk about that with the minutes that we have. So in the letter, I'm to be reminded of this verse Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved. Amen. Through faith, it's, it's not from yourselves. It's not anything that we'll muster in and of our own strength. It is the gift of God given free of charge, not by works, so that none of us can run around taking credit for our salvation. Powerful verses. But there's a next verse. It wasn't included in the letter. Verse 10 of this same passage. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Folks, we must understand the gospel in its entirety not just the favorite part of it. You do, you do not earn your salvation by doing good works, but you prove your salvation by doing good works. This is the full message of the gospel that does not get nearly enough press as that part of the message that sounds like, 
I just have to believe. I'm not taking anything away from that. But that belief is demonstrated in how we behave. And Jesus made this very clear. He said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And in this context, fruit is the deeds of our life. That you bear much fruit showing yourselves, not just saying, but showing yourselves to be my disciples. John the Baptist and Jesus both had this message. Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Produce evidence, dem demonstrable proof of what you have professed. Jesus said this, by their fruit you will recognize them. In fact, be prepared that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It was interesting, at the close of the letter, there was another passage of Scripture and I was confused that the author of the letter missed the point. Colossians chapter 1, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every good way, bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. We can't separate belief from behavior. If we do, we do not have the gospel. James, the brother of Jesus, raises a very interesting discussion in his letter. James says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but they have no deeds? Can such a faith save them, he asked? Can it really rescue their soul? Suppose a brother or sister was without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that, he asked? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And I'll tell you, a dead faith will not save your soul. But someone says, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds. You'll be hard-pressed to do it. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, that's a good start, that's a strong belief, but you should know that even the demons believe that. I mean, those are hard-hitting words to Christians. You foolish person, do what, do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And then James ends his passage, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Folks, I have to tell you that I think we've misled an entire generation of people when it comes to an understanding of the gospel, a mistaken belief that it's only about my beliefs. I said the words. I professed my sin and asked Christ to be my savior. That is the beginning of the gospel. All made possible through the outrageous grace of Christ and his sacrificial death of atonement on the cross. But it doesn't end there. This generation must be reminded or maybe taught for the first time that it is in what we do, it's how we behave, that is proof that our repentance and our trust in Christ is real. And it's only that kind of faith when proven by our deeds that demonstrates that we are truly saved. The gospel is both believing in Jesus Christ for my salvation, not by anything that I do, but it is also about the power that Christ gives me to now behave in such a way that demonstrates that my profession of love is in fact true. So when we talk about the gospel here at Cibola Creek, let's talk about all of it. Let's talk about all of it. If there's any confusion in anybody's ears here this morning, let me make it perfectly clear. You will not be saved by your works. To try to earn your salvation will only be exhausting. You are saved when you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior for the work that he did on the cross on your behalf. But don't think for a moment that you're done. That now it's just coasting until the bus leaves for heaven. As a proof that your confession is true, we are called to follow Jesus into a variety of expressions of works or deeds or acts that demonstrate that our love for him is in fact genuine and true. And what I happen to be talking about over the last several weeks is not this end of the gospel. It's this end of the gospel challenging this church family to let's be honest. Let's not be liars. But let's live out in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ who's called us to be his sons and his daughters. Let's be real about the Savior that we serve. Does that make sense? I can't begin to describe to you how important it is that you know a balance of not only knowing God's outrageous love for you, but God knowing your outrageous love for him.
the God who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Make sense? Thanks for listening. Let me ask you to stand together. Let's pray. God, may we never grow tired of hearing of your amazing grace, your endless love for us, your sons and your daughters. Even in our sin, you loved us and continue to love us. In the beauty of your forgiveness, all that was secured through the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But Father, I pray that as John reminds us, let's not just be ones who love in words, but let us love in action and in the truth. And may we be the kind of congregation that understands that we will live in obedience to our Savior Jesus Christ, not to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate to ourselves and to our world that it is true. Call us, Father, to something bigger, higher, fuller than just going to church on a Sunday. And may our world and our community and our homes and our hearts be different for it. I pray and ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.